This is the morning podcast with Jacob and Ethan. Sunday this Sunday. is hell. Yeah, um, you know, anime people aren't real, so if they play guitar, it's not like they really learned it. Actually, um, in Japan, they they were like number one. They released as a fictional band from the anime, and they were the number one Billboard charting record for like six weeks straight. I thought Japan was weird. I mean, they are weird. They're all <laughs> incels, you know. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, don't want to don't want to hate on Japan on record. Let's make it awkward to begin with. No, I um, I don't know, man. I was Tokyo's the biggest city on the planet. I was reading yesterday. Like, is it really that big? Like is in terms of size or population? Both is what I was reading. I was like, this can't be right. This I is mean, not. This is not correct information. Have you seen how dense Tokyo is? Right, but you know, like just because a fruit is dense doesn't make it a big fruit. I mean, if you're looking for a lot of seeds, and it has a lot of seeds, and it's a melon, then it has a lot of seeds. You would know as a, a melon farmer, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, you never actually take the seeds out of the fruit. You just buy them from a company that has engineered them in a lab. And also has uh, intellectual property rights on them, so they can sue you if you if they blow into the wrong grounds. Yeah, I think that has more to do with... I don't think we ever really run into that with our cantaloupe and like all that stuff. But yeah, it, it is true. Like you can't, yeah, you can't just like um, use seed for whatever you want to do with it. The other weird thing too, is a lot of farmers will put like signage in their fields. So I think they get a little bit extra from the company if they like put a sign in their fields saying where they got the seed from. So they'll also do that. So you'll drive by and you'll see what company sold it to them. That to me is the weird part. It's like, do I really need billboard advertisements for for crop seed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what am I going to do? Um, no, it's uh, we've been getting a lot of rain. It's been storm. It's been weather's weird because usually it's like April, May that we get weather. But it's been stormy like every day. We got our nearby town, not the one I'm outside of, but the other one. They got like two and a half inches in like an hour and a half. It's crazy. This is this is how farmers talk about how the about how the rain went. This is well. I mean, we had um, I don't know if you saw the news, but we had oh this bullshit amounts of smoke uh, blow into uh, New York City, and it was very apocalyptic. I very saw dystopian. Yeah, I saw the pictures, and it was very weird. Um, Blade Runner twenty forty eight. Yeah, yeah. The thing that really pissed me off was I was reading CNBC and um, their headline was most of the United States in air quality warning. And then I open up the National Weather Service website and it's just like the upper corner of the U.S., which well, is just like the, what? most of the population. Not even, though. Like what? New York has eight million people probably with. Probably if you include Boston and Jersey, you get to maybe 30 million, you know? It's it's certainly not most. I just – I was like, yeah, the media okay. isn't New York-centric. Britain Tell is me that. walking over right now, I think. So. Okay. that's uh, Wait, walking over? Yeah, we live – or like he, he might have taken the bus, but he's uh, – I thought he lived really far from you, or did he move? 
Yeah. Um. Right now, he moved, I guess, back closer um, to me. He lives basically on the same street I do, but, you know, like two neighborhoods down. Okay. Are you still in the same place you were? Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course. With your Albanian door lady. Y- yeah. She actually might be quitting. She, there was a really funny incident that happened with her recently, actually. Uh, like a lot of the people at the building went out. I'm, I'd rather not. I actually shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't put that on right. I went anyway, to Albania. basically, uh, um, uh, apparently a very fatherly figures uh, or like <laughs> qualities. You do? Yes. She told you. Oh, she, she told you this. So it was brought up at some point. I will okay. speak. Well, no women more. are all looking for their second father. So I don't know if that's true. <laughs> you don't know if it's true as a categorical I, I don't imperative. True. Yeah. Some women, some women are subconsciously seeking a second father. I mean, Not a lot of a lot of men are looking for a, for a, a mother. A mother. I, it <laughs> is. Yes, I'm not excluding men from the right. uh, from the strange the psychological. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't. You know, this is another thing I was thinking about this week because I've been reading some Kant, and um, I don't really know how Kant. What? I said that's always a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) Means you're well, good mental health if you're reading Kant. Does it? I don't know which. No, no, I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think if you're in bad mental health, like you can handle reading Kant. Like if you're not doing well, like Kant's stressful. You know? Yeah, but I think. What do you mean? form of synthesis what do you mean right but that like you also have to be like mentally ill enough to go ahead and do exactly what you're doing right now yeah to like i want to read Kant's conception of the pure form of synthesis and how it relates to the concepts and and erring in the understanding or whatever but anyway i was thinking about freud speaking of freud freudian shit is we don't give newton any shit even though his laws of physics don't really apply to like nature, like Newton's laws of physics. I mean, Newton's laws of physics describe our experience of our nature. nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They describe Well, they didn't even describe our nature. They describe, describe our experience of nature, right. On a human level. Sure. So why in the hell do all these tenured assholes feel the need to like denigrate Freud? Because yes, Freud's conception of the psyche is not like, based in neuropsychology, but it still fairly accurately describes our human experience of I don't think you're on. I don't think you're on TikTok enough. <laughs> it's just like TikTok is all vibes, and like there's a lot of pop psychology going on there. And it's just like all vibes-based, you know? So I think you'd be into that, you know? Like what? Like, what is pop psych? I don't even know. Dude, I don't know. I don't even internet. It's just like... I've been playing chess a lot. It's like, uh, oh, ooh, LieChess or Chess.com? LieChess. Fuck Chess.com. Yeah, let's go. Um, I, I also like LieChess because I have like a 600 point higher rating there than I do on <laughs> Chess.com. Uh, tired of facing Russian flags and just constantly getting... Well, dude, I just feel like with Chess.com too, you just get cheated on. I, I just, no, I think there's a lot more people. Or like the diehards are on live chess, obviously. But, yeah, the die. You know. That's the thing. Everybody on live chess is like a real. Except I've like started getting some dudes. Last time I was playing, messaging me, asking me, asking me where I live and if I was a boy or a girl. I'm like, bro, the fuck out. I'm here to beat you. That's I'm just valid. To- it's just crossing over from Valorant. 
Um, Valorant. Valorant. It's a it's a video game. It's um oh. a first person shooter that a lot of people are playing. But there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of e dating going on in that video game, which is really weird. Oh no. Well, I mean, although the I've... kids are not all right. You know, the kids are fucked. <laughs> I don't, you know, I actually, I've kind of changed my stance on video games because if you think about like the relative health of playing video games versus being on social media, I feel like video games are so much healthier for you. It depends. I think you need to have a really good uh, uh, ability of separation to be able to do so in a healthy way if you're playing online multiplayer games, which predominantly children are because that's their form of socialization. I mean, I do think that on the neurological level, like we're connecting nerves that you're not connecting normally by just like, you know, doing these fine motor things and like connecting your your coordination and will help you prevent maybe dementia later on. But you're also gaining the critical mental virus of online gaming culture, you know, which is what it's like. What What's worse? Like, it's like, oh, should I just smoke cigarettes and die or should I just vape and also die? You know? Yeah, I mean catastrophizing and trying to fuck everybody else's mom when you're eight. But I mean, at least it's fundamentally a social, cause that's not like the whole thing. Like your mom, like I'm going to, you know, like, not like they say that they're going to get each other's moms, but uh, I think you're in like 2012. I'm, I'm, <laughs> era. I'm old with that. Yeah. But now I it's just, just mean... about like racial slur or like homophobic. Slurs, oh, the fun stuff. Slurs. Well, it's coming back, you know, because of all of the, the mask. I think it's all, it's all ironic. No one really hates gay I... people. <laughs> 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 I don't think it's ironic like with these kids. I mean, I think it started that way. It's just like when you say something ironically a lot and then you start like internalizing it, you know, like people saying hello. Oh, come on. You can ironically be a racist. It's okay. I mean, yeah, I do that all the time. Like, I am absolutely racist against Serbians. But, you know, it's like... Oh, fuck Serbia. Right, yeah. I mean, you know, let's Not go. that I love Albania. I was I in mean, Albania this fall. more of a Croatian thing for me. <laughs> yeah, no, not any of them. Dude, Mas- I go for Ma- Macedonia and Bosnia. All right, mm. I rep those two. But uh, of the Balkans, those are my Balkans. <laughs> those are my Balkans. <laughs> um... Um, yeah, I mean, it, but it, 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 you know, it's just, I think meme, it's like 4chaners, right? There are a lot of 4chaners who are ironic. Edgelords. That way. And, or just edgelords, right? And then they're like kids who watch edgelords and don't understand or have no media literacy and therefore, you know, continue to believe edgelord stuff is real. Dude, I don't, you know, I'm not going to lie, dude. I know that they don't fuck enough, but I feel like the younger generation is on their no, shit. No, they, they specifically don't want to fuck because there's too much fucking that they've seen, I think. Okay. You know? Well, I was riding in a I was went to town to pick up a jacket from an ex-girlfriend and I met up with a buddy. And uh, is Britain? No, I'm just my dog was stretching. I was wondering oh. if someone Okay. Um but they uh I met with this dude and we were we were driving back to my car cuz we went out to a bar and we we just rode together, but he was telling me on the way, like we were talking about the N word and he was giving me a very like intelligent, this is like a country boy from Kansas, mind you. This isn't like some Columbia student. This is like some country boy from Kansas living in Topeka, giving me a very intelligent, like understanding, like conscious of different identities, sort of understanding of the use of the N word. 
and like not even a very woke like like regurgitation of shit but just like yeah i kind of get it it's not really our word and it's not just that like you use it as a slur but also you don't want to use it ironically because it does have a lot of power but also i don't want to give a word power over us because that's stupid too like i feel like the kids are all right I feel like the kids have got some shit figured out that we – like they also – we grew up. We were just like social media. We just ate it like a Golden Corral buffet, and these kids are very skeptical of like Facebook and Instagram. I mean they're all on it, but they're very skeptical. I think I'm talking maybe like the generation under Gen Z specifically. Like oh, you were like younger than Gen Z. Does that even exist Gen yet? Alpha. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's like all the kids who are commenting on, on the TikTok videos that are like – getting imbibed in this kind of stuff i mean a lot of them will grow out of it i'm sure but it's also like it's it's kind of worse than it was in 2006 it feels like right now the discourse about the gays you know dude i remember back in 2006 it was like remember when obama was still against gay marriage (laughs) i do yeah i mean i mean that's when uh, joe biden was the the conservative uh democrat (laughs) Dude, that's weird to me. In my lifetime, we've gone from being a country where, like, most people don't want gays to get wedded to a country where, like, why the fuck would you have a problem with a gay dude marrying a gay dude? Like, it, that's probably been the biggest, like, social issue swing in my lifetime, I think. Yeah, I mean, in the, the 20 years, I think, of... Yeah. Because it also just became profitable, you know, to... to... Oh, you think? That's why? To, to be, you know, like, accepting of gay people. <laughs> oh, see, I was always just like, I think people just realized it was stupid. It's like, what is what the fuck does it matter? Well, I mean, people did realize it was stupid for decades and decades, I think. And then it got worse in the 70s uh, through the 90s just because of kind of that whole culture war starting. Um, and then um, I think people realized it was stupid again. Um, but then, you know, gay people started be- becoming kind of like higher earners, culturally relevant, more visible um, because of all the stuff. And then, you know, uh, as as what happens when culture gets created, um, people, uh, Target starts putting rainbow flags up, you know, yeah. and then taking their displays down, you know, and then not dis- <laughs> taking their displays down for some people because they think it's satanic, I guess. Yeah, I don't what dude, I don't. I don't want morality from – I don't really give a shit what Target or Bud Light think about social issues. I really don't care. It doesn't impact my per- – I would even I – mean, that's, that's the whole thing, though. It's just like this is all liberalism, right? Like, like this is all like – like conservatives, like when you, when you look at the, the conservative media, they're just doing liberal shit. Like, oh, my God, look at, look at this co- company. We got to boycott it because they're not like – going by our moral values it's just you know the the flip side of kind of exactly that analysis of uh you know kind of moral lens on on consumerism yeah it's never been about true ideological principles it's always been about identity because if it was really about ideological principles republicans would be the ones saying right now businesses should be able to do whatever they want and democrats would be saying like businesses should be held up to a moral standard because that's how it was when I was a kid. Same thing with COVID. Like you would think like a conservative, someone on the right would be in favor of a strong government when it comes to response to an epidemic and people on the left politically would be like in favor of laissez-faire shit just from a political fundamental standpoint of understanding liberalism and conservatism. But like the fact that 
that the ideological poles of politics don't match party identity and party beliefs just tells me that it's all identity. Like, like Republican and Democrat is just a surrogate for certain class and location markers. Like, it's just a war between wealthy coastal elites and like middle to lower class sit people in the center. Like, it's like upper upper class college educated urbanites slash coastals versus middle to lower class non urbanites slash people without a college degree. So it's essentially just become a marker for a certain kind of class. And well, I don't think it's a conflict, a class marker, because you're you're understating kind of how strong the the conservative, wealthy, you know, uh, contingent, large it is, and powerful it is, right? You know, right. Like, but I think fundamentally, fundamentally, if we're talking about dollars a year, you know, right? Like, I'm not talking about the superstructure here to use your to use your boy yeah. Marx. I'm talking about like like fundamentally though the the mass of, of each party is more of a, of, I wouldn't even call it class. Cause I don't think that. I think it's lo- just location. Um, well, it's, ur- it's, it's, it's know, urban versus non-urban college education versus not college educated. Like those are the two primary dividers of like, if someone is a non-college educated, non-urbanite, they're a, they're a conservative. If they're an urbanite and college educated, they're a Democrat. And if they have one of those two identities, they don't know what the fuck to do with themselves. So, I mean, it's essentially like it's not really an ideological marker. I mean, I'm not a Democrat, you know, by, by any means. Like, but I don't you, you still vote Democrat. Like, you're functionally a Democrat. Kind of. I mean, you know, no one. I don't think. You're not going to vote for Trump. I think. Well, no. I mean, yeah, let's go DeSantis. Like, let's go Meatball Ron. Um, but, you know, people. Do you yeah, have any? Do you like DeSantis? No. <laughs> people aren't aligned with. Um, party i think as much as as you're stating yeah. um i think but, i think they believe they are um because of kind of the way it's been institutionalized but i don't think it is um true to people i think people have more policy based or more like issues based opinions about things like in immigration right like everyone like basically regardless of kind of believes in immigration reform to some level people want immigrants to come you know and selfishly so they just don't want other immigrants not to be here or whatever reason because they believe it's zero sum because that's the way it's being posited um i think in the media uh but it i you know it's like people people are aligned on like health care right like even even republicans care want single-payer health care they just you know don't want medicare for all because they they the, the the branding was tarnished for them just like bud light um you know, which which is also just like hilarious. Tranny light, dude. I don't, I don't get it at all. I'm just gonna keep talking while you get the door. I don't. You can't even hear me though while I talk. So I better just get some coffee while you get up. All right, all good. Well, hold on, I have to open the. Just test. I'm testing my. Dude, why don't you use Reaper? Fuck Audacity. Download Reaper. It's free. Do you see that? I mean, I have no. I use I use uh, Ableton. I'm an Ableton user, but oh, you fucking snob! At least it's not Logic Pro. Oh, Greek to me. Uh, Reaper is the snob program. What are you talking? You think about? you think Reaper snobby? Yeah, everyone who's like a, a like snobby engineer uses Reaper. Oh, I feel like Reaper is like the. It's like, like it's, it's like faulty. people who can't afford Pro Tools. But it's so much better. Reaper is so much better. 
I mean, I don't disagree with is you. Is it the but... intersection of like open source makes it weirdly more snobby? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So everyone develops their own plugins. So it's like, oh, the people who have like the plugins for Reaper that are like the coolest or yeah, like. Oh, dude, one of my buddy was like, he was working on some music and he just like, oh yeah, a, I threw. Let what? me do a slate. So we have a slate for when you want to yeah. think the audio. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Britt, I don't know. Can you pull that mic a little closer to you? Because you are way quieter than Britt on the audio. Right, you're okay. way quieter than Peaches. Okay, how about now? That's better. There you. Now you're good. Now you're good. When it's you were probably, talking before, yeah, I, I raised his game. Mm. Okay, his game was down. Um, yeah, no, dude. Like my buddy, he was using. I don't know what he was using. He's like, yeah, I put some EQ and, and reverb on it, and all he did was like use a couple plugins in the default settings. I'm like, no, you have to go in and like. That's what I love about Reaper is I can get like. Do I need 980 hertz? 985 hertz? Do I need a Q of two, a Q of 1.9? Like you just get really... Yeah, but everyone just cracks plugins. You know that, right? Like I just use Pro Q3. You See, know? No, I just use... Dude, the Reaper built-in plugins are great. They're fa they're fantastic. I've only used... As are the Ableton ones, which is why I use Ableton. Yeah, I've only used... I think I've used one or two like third-party plugins in, in Reaper. I used one for a little not compression for um what's it called not distortion what's less than distortion dry overdrive yeah i think i used an overdrive an overdrive tube saturation saturation oh, okay that's what i used it's really nice used it on some drums because i could not get the drums right and then i just like threw them into the saturation so it just ended up compressing them but it also made them crunchy and big brett what's going on you graduated grad school yet yeah yeah, I'm done with that now. You're so, done. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm a, I'm a working stiff again. You're working for the city or what? Yeah, working working for the Brooklyn Borough President. Can you turn him up even a little bit more, Britt? Because he's still way quieter than you. What do you do? I'm a planner, urban planner now, full time. Just working on plans and and it's kind of like working for a politician too. Like we're working on this big comprehensive plan. I just okay. I also won't say that again. But okay. yeah. Uh, also, Jacob, just uh, put a compressor on Brit's track afterwards, and it should you know he's really his voice travels a lot with a compressor on that mic. So Jacob okay. is also clipping a little bit in my ears. Yeah. I am clipping. I I can't help it with this headset. I mean, yeah. my audio quality is still fine though, right? Yeah, you're clear. Yeah, I and it's weird because I'm not clipping locally, but I clip whenever I go in the ZenCaster. So I'm not really sure. I can't turn down my gain in ZenCaster. Mm. Um, I'm sorry about that. That's okay. I can I can turn on your as audio it, as actually. long as it turns out fine. Yeah. That should be better. Oh, I mean, it's breakfast as hell. So you know that's the nice thing when you call something hell, no matter how it turns out, it's apropos. Right. As long as it's not heaven, therefore it must be hell. All that is not heaven is hell. Are you implying that breakfast is other people? Wow. If breakfast is hell and hell is other people. Ooh. Actually, I've been so I was telling Peaches this earlier, Brett. Been... It's Doylen Green, his people. <laughs> what? That that was my jump. He's like, oh my god, we're eating people for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I've been reading some Kant. But anyway, he he gets into the idea that not all logic is like that sort of synthesis. He's saying that some logic, it's not like the apple is green. Green is evil. All apples are evil. He's saying sometimes you link subjects and predicates that don't actually fundamentally connect that way. 
you have to link them by intuition. So like there's a certain kind of synthetic logic that also happens, which I'd never heard of, even though I've taken like philosophy and logic classes. I've never heard of the idea that like not all logic is propositional. Like it is prop, it's all propositional, but it's not all like A, B, A, C, B, C. It's like actually the idea of synthetic logic. This is interesting to me. I've, I've never experienced it. Is there an example? It's been a while. I would have to open up the book because everything I can think of sounds like Aristotelian logic. But Mm. basically when you like, if you link a subject and a predicate, but there's no steps of like what we did with like people are evil, right? It has to, you just kind of have to like instinctually link them. Like, um, oh, if I could think about something with time and, oh, maybe something like, like two sides of a triangle combined are longer than its third side right there's nothing inherent to the concept of a side of a triangle or of a triangle you just have to synthetically know that like two sides of a triangle added together are bigger than its third side so it's not aristotelian it's just like it's just sort of like instinctual interesting okay yeah Hmm. so in a sense you've like you've like worked with the concepts of triangles and lines but without needing to like have these prop propositions. But anyway, um, Brit, uh, not Brit peaches. What were you getting about with the pop psychology when we were talking about TikTok and Freud? Oh, there's just a lot of people on TikTok, TikTok talking about psychology just based off of vibes. That's as academic as you're describing in my opinion. <laughs> well, you don't think I'm academic? No, no. I'm just, uh, eschewing ac- academia. <laughs> oh dude. I mean, I don't mind conception. Academia is just like, people regurgitating the furthest limits of bullshit that they can so they can be original so they can get tenure. Like the system is fundamentally broken because it rewards like eccentricity. It rewards eccentricity and throwing out the past. And then there's no like actual reproduction that happens in experiments. They're all like one off occurrences. So there's no actual scientific process going on. So I think that academia is well. What's that? In philosophy as well. Oh, in in general. Oh, you know, I think my problem with philosophy, um, do you want to hear my thoughts on? Sure. I don't know. I mean, I actually, <laughs> also, I don't know if, if we've started the show or not or what I'll, 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 uh, defer to you. Yeah. So my problem with philosophy and this actually, cause I took a few intro philosophy classes and this is what turned me off. And I've realized, I always thought I just wasn't working hard enough because that's what I do as a good Catholic red blooded American. Um, but like looking not back, work hard enough. didn't, you know, well, go ahead. There's an inherent kind of like, <laughs> just like, um, you can't be inherently Catholic and American, you know, that's, uh, well, oh, I just, I wasn't sure if we were doing a, a you know, anti-Catholic eight, 1900s, uh, <laughs> I am, that is what okay. I'm doing. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We don't accept the Catholics as Americans, you know, Catholics are still black now. Yeah. Whoa. All right. <laughs> Hey, America's always, we've always been a country of witch hunts. It's just depends on what we're hunting at the moment. Um, but no, it's like when I would take some philosophy classes, this is the true irony. And I've only really realized this when I've been reading Kant now, but it's like, and I've re- we've all read Kant. We all had to read the morals, but I'm reading something else. Um, but I'm reading Kant and some of his conception of like, what is fundamentally true? Like what has to be true? So when I took the philosophy class, everyone has to take as their first class in Columbia, if you want to be a philosophy major, 
he was like basically regurgitating Kant. And but he wasn't even like saying this is Kant's conception of truth. He was just saying like, no, these are like the fundamental like principles of things that are always like a priori true. He didn't use a priori, but a priori true in philosophy. So he's essentially using a Kantian framework of knowledge. But the way philosophy was presented in the syllabus at Columbia is basically just as a history idea of ideas. So it's super fucked up that like somehow our conception of philosophy and like logic is sort of like linear, like that they're somehow teaching both like, like a linear progression of what is true, what is known, both like within the form of argument and in the arguments themselves. But on the other hand, they're completely disregarding any assertions as to the truth of any political system and just treating philosophy as the study of the history of ideas. So in the end, like people are like adopting a bunch of presuppositions that they don't really have any justification for, but not actually engaging in any productive philosophy and instead treating it like a history um, right. discipline. It's teleological. Which... What? Like it's, it's... Is that a fly? I mean, it sounds like that's, that's kind of what I got from what you're saying about it being linear, that it's... it's well, philosophy should be teleological. Like, philosophy is the pursuit of truth. Like, I don't think that syllabus is teleological, but, like, philosophy in its nature is a pursuit of truth, and these people are, like, asserting things in the history of philosophy as true while simultaneously, like, not acknowledging that truth can be linear in human history. Oh, I thought you were saying it was too linear. No, I'm saying it's not at all linear. They, they oh, just okay. teach, they adopt like linear principles. They adopt like Kantian ideas of like what is true, which is like a development in the history of philosophy. But they teach philosophy as essentially just like a collection of disparate systems that like you just learn and you just like, well, and so in the end, you don't even like, you don't do Heidegger and write being in time. You In the end, you like, well, in the academician's conception of time, you don't actually assert anything positive about human experience or the world. You just end up like regurgitating different systems that have preceded you. So essentially, hmm. philosophy professors are history teachers. They're just history of idea teachers. And it's, it's very stupid because philosophy is inherently teleological. Philosophy is inherently, let's get to truth. Even if we can't get to truth about God and man and nature let's get at least get to some form of truth, you know, truth about our experience of things or et cetera. Sure. But that's my contention. I don't think you need to worry about that professor though. Cause I heard that later he got destroyed by Matt Damon at the lion's head tavern. Wait, what's what? this? Like a good, you don't even know what professor yeah. Oh, okay. I thought this was the actual, an actual <laughs> no. um, event that was going on. No, it's just good. Yeah, it's Columbia bar. <laughs> you know, I went, I went on a date recently and oh wait are you not still with your no i'm oh brit i'm so sorry it's okay it's for the better um but thank you um but i want to me too i also went through a breakup recently but keep going condolences well sorry i didn't i didn't reciprocate i burned her alive in a fire so it's not really oh okay i mean it happens (laughs) sounds like a ritual sacrifice i saw a play about that once um (laughs) it's just called (laughs) midsummer No, it was, it was the take on the crucible. Oh, okay. But yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> um, but I went on a date with someone on the Upper West Side, and she was asked, like, we ended up talking about Upper West Side places, and she was like, oh, wait, actually, have you ever been to V&T? And I was like, actually, I don't know if I've ever been. She's like, oh, my parents went to Columbia, and it was, like, their favorite place. And I was like, I've had so many boxes 
a VNT pizza at things, but I've never set foot in that place. That is so bizarre to hear you say that. But yeah. dude, best place on the Upper West Side that used bookstore. I think it's on 79th. I don't know that one on on Broadway or Amsterdam. It's on Broadway. I'm looking okay. it up right now. Um, actually, I don't want to look it up because we're running. It's like 79th or 81st. I would always just walk south yeah. on Broadway to get because you know I would just like walk all of Manhattan right and like exude angst. Um, sure. Right, but like, like one does as a flaneur. What does a flaneur mean? Flaneur is like the the. Uh, I'm gonna botch the the author that it's most associated, but it's like you know the the idea of just like the guy walking through the industrial city, like now post urbanization, the sort of viewpoint of uh, a bunch of novels adopted the flaneur in particular, someone who walks through the city and just observes urban life as sort of a wanderer, and it's got a certain malaise, and it's very French in nineteenth uh, century. I would be a great Frenchman if I yeah. wasn't so exuberant. Um, that, I feel like that's eighty percent about being French is being non-exuberant. Yeah. If you're from northern France, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, was it? You're walking down to the '80s. No, have no. Uh, actually, link to this. Have you ever watched any Antonioni, like his films? No, I am trying to get more into film as of late, though. So maybe that's a good tip that I'll, I'll pursue. I saw you had a Letterboxd. Uh... Yeah, I do now, and I. I yeah, for better and for worse. I, like, I oh yeah. <laughs> is it just like the sight and sound 250 or what's in your letterbox? Oh, I'm just using it to, to log stuff so far. Um, what have you watched? Well, there's been, there's this really good film series going on at Film Forum right now where it's in partnership with the Museum of the City of New York. They're having a centennial ex- uh, celebration. So they have curated this list of like movies set in new york that is really good so um saw a couple things on film that i don't think i would have been able to see otherwise um so recently i saw this movie called the naked city which was shot in 1947 like right before a lot of the lower east side was raised um for like urban renewal and slum clearance and it's all shot on location and it's really remarkable and stanley kubrick was actually working as a uh photojournalist (laughs) taking production stills on that movie at the time. So you get a lot of uh, his stills. Sick stills. Yeah. Oh, no. And he, they've got them at the museum. Yeah. It's really, it's really, really fascinating. Um, I also saw, um, what else did I, say? I saw this like 30 minute, like kind of tone poem of, of uh, this guy just went out in the 70s or 80s and took a bunch of footage of um, the elevated trains in the Bronx and Upper Manhattan. And I didn't realize before going in that it was actually largely documenting the graffiti of the trains, but it was just really artfully put together and very like kind of uh, documentary style. Um, and then what was the other movie I saw there? I, I'll pull up my letterbox actually. This is why I have this, right? But I might yeah. go see, uh, they're going to do, they're, they've added showings. I might go see Midnight Cowboy. I really wanted to see, I saw French Connection for the first time a couple years on my own TV. And I was thinking about going and seeing it in film. That is a classic. Is French Connection set in New York? It is. Big I time. Uh, I guess they must have been uptown then where they got the over, overheads. That was, that was out in uh, Brighton Beach, actually. The, Brighton the Beach? Brighton Beach in Brooklyn the big car chase and that yeah you know the the car crash and that chase uh-huh. that was the real crash that was just a random person driving on the street like they the the 
like NYPD, the work with the NYPD that they did for that movie was just getting like two or three cops to tail them and like get them into places. And like, they just did not, they did not shut the street off. That is a real crash. Like somebody actually got kind of hurt. It, it was a wild. William Friedkin sounds like a wild person. Oh, I saw Killer's Kiss as well, which was Stanley Kubrick's sort of his first movie ever um, that had some really uh, cool scenes. But also, you could tell it was his first movie ever, and he was trying to like kind of teach himself how to make a movie. Did you go to way. check out the the scenes when you were out in Coney Island yesterday? I did. Yeah, yeah. It was helpful. I, there was one point we were walking under the elevated where i was like oh i don't remember off the top of my head but i'm like 99 percent sure this is in the warriors you know um but yeah i don't know i'm trying to get in to film more it was sort of uh i, I kind of winced when letterboxd was mentioned because i there was i was dating this girl and i'm no longer dating her and um but was still following her on letterboxd and then i realized uh-huh. i should unfollow her because now i'm just seeing every movie she goes on dates with with this other person and it's bumming me out but it still has been a good kickstart for um me getting into more movies that's my little sob story but antonini yeah i would i would love to what, what what's interesting about antonini i think is it antonioni or is it antonini it's it's i it's whatever you said i was just trying to remember what you said antonini. yeah no i mean here's the thing man i read a lot but i don't have smart i mean i have smart friends but i don't have bookish friends so i pronounce things like you would always do them phonetically. Um, no, he's just, he's very much about this sort of malaise and like very modern malaise, like malaise. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you pronounce that word? Malaise? Yeah, malaise. Yeah, malaise. But like he's very much about modern, just like disorientation. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, if different films, one in particular, I would say like industrial sorts of things is Red Desert, which is not one of his best films, but he's certainly like, he he kind of gets in different topics. I I'm very I'm very fond of him. Um, he's he can be difficult. Like he just it's not difficult. You just you almost you don't want to watch it high, but you want to come into the movie like kind of with that feeling. Like you're just you're there to take it in. Like you have to kind of have like I'm sitting okay. on my porch vibes to really enjoy his films. But if you can get in that headspace, um, and his he's. He's not really, I wouldn't call him, like, he doesn't use, like, Ozu, you know, Japanese-style low-key, like, techniques, but he will do, he sort of shares some philosophical similarities where he does do very subtle pans. Okay. Like, just tries to get a very good composition and just hold that shot for 10 minutes. Wide, Wide shots. Yeah, there's one I can remember in particular where it's, like, it's in a movie called La Aventura, but he has basically a shot. He's got a shot of this island, and he's got like most of the shot is just the rocky shore of the island, and you got a little bit of like where the characters are. It's almost like a bad shot, but that he he takes that shot and he just pans it up just a little bit, like ten degrees, and then you get the proper composition of like this rocky shore taking up most of the shot and the two characters from far away, and so it's this very much like almost like finding the bad shot within the good shot or the good shot within the bad shot. It's a very interesting moment. Um, interesting. Yeah. But I don't, I think for me, even though the, I have qualms with the new list that came out, like the sight and sound 250 is I think the best way to go. If you want to like get a comprehensive view of film history and different approaches, um, right. that list is phenomenal. Okay. Do you have a, a letterbox? No, I just remember what I've seen. 
That's impressive. I, I, I'm terrible about that. I don't watch, I think, enough <laughs> films, honestly, out of my way to forget, I guess. But Lubitsch, I mean, you're going to... Go well, I, I was going to say, um, like, in kind of the totally opposite way, like, I, you just reminded me that I think the last film I saw was Decision to Leave um, by Park Chanuk, the, the Korean film. Uh, he's the guy who did uh, Old Boy, and it's like this weird, like, noir romance film, but shot with extreme, like, camera movements and, like, a lot of that, like, that physical comedy that's in South Korean film. Um you know, totally the opposite, but just reminded me that, that that was the last film I'd seen in a Dude, speaking of Korean film, I fucking hated Parasite. Parasite was good, but have you ever seen Burning? No. Burning is like one of, I think, my favorite films of all time, much less like a Korean film. But it has like uh, Stephen Young, who's canceled, sorry. Um, yeah. Well, why? Because he, he defended uh, the, the guy on um, his show or whatever, HBO. I don't even know the first story. Oh, I didn't know this. This is all new news to yeah, me. This yeah. is upsetting. I know. You got you to keep up. It's too People get canceled too fast, Britt. Uh, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's like a psychological thriller. Um, it's like one of those unreliable narrator things. You like think there's a murder going on. There not, might not even be a murder going on. You know, that kind of thing. But, um, you know. Yeah. Snowpiercer was great. Yeah, classic. Eh, yeah, but it's like, it, it was great, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's I not really cool. it was, that Korean. Like, it's like a, a masterpiece either. Like, you know, it's not Oh, a, dude, that fucking axe scene. But they're fucking just eat, hacking each other's skulls with axes. It's pretty good. I mean, it's a good film. <laughs> no, I, I agree. But I, for me, it just doesn't have like that aura of like, oh, I watched this film. And I was like, oh, like I, you, you, you ever watch something? And you're like, oh, that was like really like, like it, it. I, it changed my perspective about something. Like, I don't think Snowpiercer yeah. did that. And that's obviously, you know, just because politically, at least, I understand. <laughs> I, yeah. Towards the, I feel like that was one thing where Ozzy and I always had a very different reading of that. Whereas, like, towards the end, I think their they're more anarchist side show because they, they're like, oh, this is unambiguously, like, a great ending. And I, but to me, I'm like, they're going to, freeze and starve to death out on that mountain like like every, like i don't know there's some solace and i guess then in, in destroying the machine i guess but it it very much was like a, a the world is over now ending to me which i yeah. thought was interesting but i i always have a, a fond memory of watching snowpiercer because the first i think that might be the last movie that like i properly like torrented or streamed uh-huh. and we found a version that had no subtitles whatsoever but we didn't realize so like the end of the movie is the first it's like the final act where they have a scene that's like extended in korean but it went on for a while we're long enough we're like oh we probably just aren't meant to understand this (laughs) and then it went on for like two minutes and we're like okay no we, we we're probably supposed to understand this but it was really funny how like it didn't have it's not like it had korean subtitles for the english parts it had no subtitles for either part so yeah. i was like how did we even get this copy it, it was for me yeah that movie was for me right. to watch um i don't know I, I i think i i saw something recently where i think they deliberately didn't put subtitles in, in yeah. the film um and i really like the idea of you know like to me because i'm not i'm like I'm not necessarily uh, big on writing, I guess, as movies. For me, it's definitely more about like that technical side, that um, you know, mise en scène uh, <laughs> that that you can provide. Um, so, like, I love the idea of just like being able to p- portray stuff without language because that's like 
that's film to me, right? That's why we have film. Or just or just attending to a different kind of language, right? Yeah. Film does sort of have because I'm much more of a visual, I think, like medium. Like I'm a photographer, like in my my spare time. So yeah. like, I think representing things. And you're a good photography. one. Thank you. I need to do more of it. Um, yeah. Got... I saw something at BAM on Friday that my my sister had tickets to, that was really stunning photography, but sort of a little a little empty theme wise. But it's still kind of nice to see something that's really pretty. But I I don't think. Stunning photography is true if it doesn't convey kind of like what the narrative purpose of it's supposed to be. Yeah, I guess it was documentary, but it was interesting because there was a director, like she spoke a little bit after the movie and then she was very honest that she made this during COVID and she felt really uh, frustrated that (laughs) she wasn't able to have her usual like viewings with her, her team of editors like in the same room and how like trying to schedule meetings to talk over Zoom really did not itch that scratch for her and like actually refining the film which I found very relieving to hear because I felt that way about my much less creative projects at the time you know I I was like okay good I'm glad that somebody else felt that like just scheduling time to talk about things was not clicking for them you could just message the view from 202 group chat right no I mean this (laughs) that's also why we record in person too right to just like feel out or just just the presence in the room is very different um when you can get it I work at a fully remote company right now. And yeah, there's like definitely a lot of moments where I'm just like, I wish I could just grab you by the shoulders and tell you what I need to tell you. you know? right. yeah. It's a weird thing where at the start of the pandemic, it sort of felt like, oh, we're finally realizing that we don't need to be in person all the time. And then it took us like a year and at two into it. Like, no, actually we do need to be in person. But yeah. can I, can I bring up something? Okay. So I, actually, some... I, I push. I still don't think most people need to be in person, you know, and I think most things can be just done with emails. I just hate that people like th- think that the, the middle part is like necessary. And then that creates a lot of like, yeah, just, uh, I'm mad at that. You mean like the, the calls, right? Like yeah. you don't need to like have that middle level of kind of interaction. You could just have that casual, like, Oh, let's just send this off in an email or a yeah. message. Okay. Here's, I want to get at something though, since we talked about Snowpiercer. And how do you say that director's name, Peaches? Because I don't know how to say it. They got it made uh, Snowpiercer and Parasite. Zhang Bun Ho? Zhang Bun Ho? Pang Chun Ho? Anyway, this is one of my griefs with, with art criticism and art in general. Because to me, Snowpiercer, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's a masterpiece. Bong but I do think Chun it's. Chun Chun yeah. Sorry, correcting myself. All right, you don't think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but it is a great film. Whereas Parasite, Parasite was also partially ruined for me because I watched a Japanese film a month or two before I watched Parasite that either on purpose or accidentally, he basically just copied. So like the setup is, it's like basically the same film, just not as stylish. Um, See, I would say this happened to me with John Wick um, a little bit because everyone like fucking loves John Wick. Like best action but for me i was like in an action movie kick so i just seen the raid redemption and then i just oh yeah after and i was like this is this is like not like <laughs> that or it's not you yeah but or this not is like as visceral yeah but this is sort of my thing with like country music and like um who's the girl that everybody liked a couple years ago casey musgraves or kendrick lamar with to pimp a butterfly versus like damn or good kid mad city i think with art critics or college-educated people, whatever you group you want to call it, I think there exists a certain kind of looking down upon, a certain kind of like, this genre we don't really identify with, we don't really understand it, we don't think it's that great. And so the only instances it, 
instances of it that they praise are instances where it adopts the language or the content of traditionally acclaimed things. Like Parasite is the family drama. Kendrick Lamar's The Pimp a Butterfly has jazz elements. Like when country music uses strings or like, like with Taylor Swift, for example, the album that coastal people always tell me is her best is 1989, which is definitely not even her third best album. But it adopts all the signifiers of like a high quality classic album, 45 minute length, you know, synths, et cetera, throwbacks. And so I guess I've been thinking a lot recently. I feel like, and especially as someone who grew up in the country, I don't even know if there's room for debate about it, but maybe I just want to soapbox about it on the podcast. But I feel like when it comes to like genres outside of the quote unquote, like traditionally great genres, the things themselves never get respect. Like Snowpiercer deserves fucking respect. You know, like there are some country records that are hick as fuck, but that still deserve some respect. Like Wu-Tang deserves more respect. You know, I mean, like you Japanese don't have to put... music deserves respect too, right? It's the second largest market. Like Japanese music, for example, deserves respect. Yeah. It's the second largest market in the world. But, you know, Americans know nothing about like how different like chord structures are just so familiar to people, right? And they hear it for the first time, yeah. so like different kinds of media. Or Tony Collette should have been nominated for an Oscar for Hereditary, but it was a genre movie. Yeah. So Right, that's also, sort of thing. That sort of thing, Britt. Like, character actors who are playing, or lead actor looking... Um, but I think like what you're saying is more about institutions being kind of part of maybe like a colonial identity almost, you know, where you have to, um, you know, pay homage or whatever to whatever this uh, existing institution or structure over you is. Um, but I also yeah. like want to challenge that in that I think a lot of people within those genres also very much respect uh, like Tabimba Butterfly, for example, because I think you know, people who are in hip hop, right? And like, look at the way that jazz is formed and how difficult it is to just rap on a jazz beat um, because of the meters is um, like its own thing. But also like, you know, Kendrick Lamar, technically very proficient, very like the songs in them are are like, you know, but I, I, I agree, like there's, there's, I think people add importance um, to things that maybe are, are like, not um worthy of it but to that point like what you're saying like people don't respect um things that like are just like oh my god someone made an incredible like dance song or whatever like if that has uh that itself has its own artistic merit that people you know won't be able to to credit right like people like skrillex right now right very very well respected within in, in his things but people like you know um, his memorable stuff was the the mainstream crossover into dubstep that, that he did. But, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, I think even even for me, like the gap between second and third wave feminism, if we're just going to keep throwing out isms, which I guess I'm doing. But no, what I'm getting, like even beyond that, it's like, because I feel like Snowpiercer is a much better movie than Parasite, but Parasite gets the acclaim. But even second wave, third wave feminism, this is what, it, even this point, because with the Sight and Sound 250, we're talking about this greatest films list. A director that got a lot of acclaim in the new list, I think her name is Chantelle Ackerman. She's she's Belgian. I don't really remember. But she's a woman who makes very cerebral films. So if you're like someone who's looking for a film director to praise, she's the person to praise. But a couple film directors that I really like, one is Agnes Varda. And then um, I don't remember the name. She made a movie called Wanda. But I really fucking – let me look this up. But I really fucking think this is a, a – genius. Barbara Loden. They make – 
not necessarily cerebral films. They're a bit more, I wouldn't quite call them touchy-feely, but they're, they're more oriented in the self. And I guess like, even I feel like when it comes to like adopting, like even just being what the fuck you are, whether it's a woman, a black person, a person from the country, a hip hop artist, a country artist, like it's almost like the things that get acclaimed have to have this sort of kind of like veneer of respectability and you can't just respect something for what it is. So then I was thinking about like third wave feminism, which is like bikini killing shit. Like you should be able to just be girly. Like if you're a girly girl, you should be able to be a girly girl without like needing to like go on a crusade about how much of a person you are. Like that's the most, fem the most feminist, the most, the best thing you can be is yourself. Like if you feel like you have to perform something you're not, then like that's a problem. So I don't really know what the larger point is I'm trying to make and I, I have to think about it more, but I feel like there is sort of something going on where like things are not really respected in themselves and like we think we're moving beyond all these prejudices, but in the end, the things we're acclaiming are just like a stereotyped version. So we're like, we're missing out on the snow piercers. We're missing out on like the bikini kills. We're missing out on the Agnes Vardas. We're missing out on Wanda, that film I mentioned. Like we're missing out on the real masterpieces in exchange for the quote unquote masterpieces that have all the signifiers of high culture, but are actually in themselves of lower quality and far less interesting. Yeah, I, I think you know, it's a little out of my wheelhouse, but I, I think with what you're saying about uh, femininity, I do think it seems like there's been a bit of a resurgence and maybe just like in, in art and culture and expressing that form of femininity uh, more full-throated also it kind of reminds me of the latest hubbub about the hannah gadsby exhibit here here in brooklyn capital of the world of bad museum exhibits uh have you, have you heard about this no i've heard of her but i don't know about this exhibit i i haven't actually you're the rare person i think who's heard yeah I, I think you would like the times review i haven't read it in full but so she curated this it's it's she got a bunch of paintings on or the brooklyn museum got a bunch of paintings on loan from the Picasso House Museum. And so she curated this like anti-Picasso exhibit that's like reframing him. And the the reviews have been very negative, but like from, um, you know, from, from like liberal and progressive like perspectives and left perspectives as well, just being like, this is really superficial. And the, the sort of read on it that has been digested is, is, that it's sort of kind of a percolating, I think, rejection of like sort of the a kind of representational art, like about five to six years ago that really felt in, in urgent and in vogue and maybe went a bit too far um, in terms of just sort of like uh, simplifying or reducing things to very uh, kind of static or, or simplified buckets to um, really push and celebrate that it, it sounds kind of similar to what you're saying about um, just like this veneer of or, or this like represent or very, very high-minded representational stuff that feels important but not necessarily good um, it seems like this a lot of people whose whose takes that I, I trust have been saying that the reaction to this Gatsby exhibit is sort of like a long time coming of people being like, yeah, this, this whole trend in the culture was a little bit ridiculous. And now we can all admit it to ourselves five years later after it's real big peak. Um, because, uh, yeah, it, it seems like that the take on or, or 
her take on Picasso is just very shallow and immature in a way that people are not impressed from any perspective. Um, so I, I guess this is good news that I do think that maybe the 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 sands or the tides are shifting on this front and, and people realize that maybe uh, that trend for about a decade ago didn't have much gas behind it af- after all. I think there's also in my, like the framing of this overall um, in terms of like what we're describing as quality to necessarily maybe be a vehicle for innovation or a vehicle for kind of new ideas or things like that. Um, I think I've, very much appreciated right now kind of the ability of someone to innovate within a familiar form or you know something that like to create something that is moving um that's simple right i've uh like right now i'm listening to a lot of i've told you i'm listening to a lot of guitar music so i listen to uh this band called polyphia right they're all like these crazy instrumentalists um like playing virtuosic guitar stuff but at the end of the day they're playing kind of over four four beats in minor keys you know um and putting stuff on top of that so that gives you that kind of grounding um to really be able to connect with that and i think like to what you're saying jacob like that that appeal to high culture to me might be more of an appeal to uh the common folk or the mainstream um to the to a form that is familiar while being able to deliver something that um you know is it is in itself a creation, uh, a genesis. It's um, like, I think within Parasite, right? It's like this very three act movie. Um, you, you kind of like know, know where like these characters come from. So you have this pre-written language of how this is supposed to go. Obviously, you know, like any director can or writer can subvert this in the ways that they want to. Um, I think that the way that Parasite did it through its visual metaphors of the house and kind of all, all these things, the, the, effort and level of CGI that was required for for Parasite in terms of like being a masterpiece to like create this film that was able to be um, processed for international audiences, um, you know, despite the fact that Snowpiercer itself is a Hollywood product, like we're saying. Um, but it doesn't really have kind of that story structure that, um, you know, like we'd be really familiar with. Um, so, I mean, like, I, th- I think that there it's like a great... Um, respect there and reason for like why we consider maybe like institutionally things are like the the greats um in their own way right i yeah i'm i'm just listening um yeah yeah it's you know you just you, you i don't know you just lose something i guess like i don't know to pimp a butterfly to me sucks like i get but, it's but impressive like, i think what you're but saying but yeah but people recognize to pimp a butterfly is a great thing i you know i I think it's a good album. Um, it's good. But it's not bad, that, but it's... But that also doesn't mean that Damn doesn't exist, right? <laughs> like, Section it's like still Damn, Damn runs laps around To Pimp a Butterfly. Like, it runs fucking laps. But why do you care? Like, you can enjoy it, like, um, to, to, to that extent. My own future reputation is at stake. Let people hate things. <laughs> no, they must things. think how I think. <laughs> No, I'm 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 in speaking in your support. I'm telling Peaches to let people hate things. No, I'm um, I'm saying like why? <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm saying let let people like things. You know? no. Well, what I like is hating things. I'm. A... <laughs> <laughs> we're we're on to the yeah classic conundrum, but yeah. No, I like the butterfly. It's not. I just remember when it came out. Oh, the mask. Oh, 
Oh, the man. It's like, it's like you don't really respect black culture. You know, these people don't really respect black culture. They want black Wait, culture who? to it. Like the art critics, the fucking institutions okay. of like we determine what's yeah, I don't good. I think anyone's disagreeing with that. <laughs> right? They don't really respect like but, like Rakim. They don't really respect like Wu Tang. They don't really respect Jesus. Like they don't really respect the greats doing what the greats fucking do. I actually, they want the greats to cater to them on that because that's the whitest uh, selection of rappers I've ever heard. I know, but it's like Jesus objectively great. Like Liquid Swords is objectively. No, great. I don't. I mean, like it's I don't. Objectively, it's like I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fucking white as shit. Who gives no, a shit? No, I don't. Like, I don't disagree with you, but like you know, like that's that's a very like Reddit list of of like okay, like artists, you know, like, like who's the guy that made uh, R.I.P. Who the fuck was that guy? But, but no, but like to that same extent, like you know, someone right now who's deep in the culture will tell you like Drake is extremely influential, which is like true to an extent but i i don't think he's like you know a great artist right take care was good okay but like you know he's had what 30 albums since then yeah drake's fallen off drake's a fucking joke now but but it's but, it, you know it, it's it, if you're reading this it's too late is a great fucking record too that one that's like okay but that one's great my my, my point was more just like you know um, but you know the point I'm trying to make. Like, they don't really respect the fucking culture. They want the culture to no, adapt like, to from, them. From, adapt from, to them. From someone else's point of view, like that's not very respectful of the culture too. Like some people are, you know, kind of new heads in, in, in like the opposite way of being old heads, where yeah. it's like, oh yeah, like history started with Kid Cudi. Like, but that's the thing. I'm not even trying to say that. Like, sorry, I I feel like you are right. My list of rappers is all white. But I I even like even people who people like like on the streets. I know I say that somewhat ironically. But I'm saying, like, these people don't get enough respect, you know? Like, there's not enough respect to shit that people listen to unless it adapts to, like, high-culture bullshit. And what, so I think it betrays like, a fundamental think... lack of respect for the underlying identity or culture that those quote-unquote masterpieces are coming from. I think I'm trying to, like, essentialize your argument right now, and it's like, oh, we need better gatekeeping. Not that we need more or less. The gatekeeping just needs to be better. <laughs> we just need to not be fucking snobs. Like, yeah, I guess like I don't know. So how I I'm out of my depth here. I'm not very yeah. We can move on to something in, else. No, no, no. But I, but it's all it's interesting because it's making me wonder like how is the the esteem and like um you know of of music criticism changed in the last thirty years? You know, like it do the music critics have the same kind of weight that they did before? Like it, do people even care? But do people need to rely on music critics the same way? today is there's did. only one but it's yeah. anthony fantana oh my god <laughs> oh, see, okay no, I, think, that I think it's i think it's two things i think so i think this is the really interesting thing because i think that people have come to rely less on critics and professors to tell them what sorts of things to consume but they rely on them for their opinions about what makes good music or good art so like respect for their specific like you need to consume this has sort of declined but respect for their opinions on what determines what is good has increased. So like To Pimp a Butterfly is a jazz snob's token rap album, you know? Like Casey Musgraves is a, is a coastal elites, quote unquote elites, like token country album. It's all tokenism. So I have a counterexample or, or an interesting flip to the uh, Paras Parasite Snowpiercer comparison where I think uh jordan peele is also maybe an interesting contrast because he's got a small selection of movies i don't know if you guys have seen nope but i think nope is maybe my favorite of his movies that came out and is much more what we're talking about being like weird original 
a, a, a great synthesis of a couple things put together and is is less going for it. Like this get is out. why you're disappointed. Stephen Young got canceled. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, like, actually. Um, and also, he's in not Jordan Peele, but uh, sorry to bother you. He's great in that mm-hmm. too. Um, but um, I I should rewatch Get Out. It's I only I, last time I watched it was literally when I was in theaters. Um, and Get Out is like great, but I think it it really benefits from like hitting the buttons, hitting the button, but like in in like this sort of subversive great way, where like the fact it the fact that it is aware of its genre really plays to its strength. That's the whole part point to like hit those notes and revert it. Uh, nope, I think maybe it was hurt by the fact that Us kind of was a was a little bit of Us was a drag. Was bad. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really like it. It kind of. I, kind of I didn't watch Nope because I was so disappointed in Us. Okay, Nope is so much better than Us. Um, okay, then I maybe nope, I'll watch nope it. Nope, fucking rules though, and I I was shocked that it didn't get a nomination or anything. To the extent that I care about you know these Oscar things anyway, mm-hmm. especially considering how weak the rest of the field was to fill out like those ten films. Um, but yeah, I think that's one thing where it didn't. It didn't. It was still a genre movie of sorts, but it didn't neatly fill the boxes, and it was sort of weird that it it kind of fell in between the cracks um and maybe in a weird way it's like people really were bought in or i think the hype was very big for like his debut film feature film being such a lightning in a bottle moment and um unlike parasite like he didn't he maybe hasn't had like momentum building into hyping up each project maybe he's trying to recapture that hype of that first project but i think it's a shame i think more people should have seen nope and I, I think it'll become maybe a cult classic over the years. Yeah, I think it's funny that you, it's kind of like the opposite where it's like, oh, I think it blew up because it was his first. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, okay, so a couple, yeah. Jordan Peele's a great example because I have a lot of respect for Jordan Peele. Obviously, he knows what he's doing. Like, you just watch his movies. Even even us, like, you watch it and you're like, this guy knows what he's doing. Well, he even just, he and Peel, you watch and you're like, yeah, oh, I have yeah. a master of like subverting genre. But see, Get Out hits all, and I'm not saying Jordan Peel did this. I think it would be disrespectful of Jordan Peel, but I think one of the reasons Get Out had such the currency it did is that its treatment of black identity in predominantly white settings is like, it just hits all the Libby self guilt buttons, you know? Like, that's not Jordan Peel's fault, but. That is part of the reason it had so much cultural currency. But like I think an indictment of that, though, like yeah, the, the, I think that that. But that's even that, the better. Like, it's a menace. It's a menace of self-flagellation. I'm watching myself well, flagellate it's not, it's myself. Not, it's no. not self-flagellation because Jordan Peele's not white. But, right, but you know what I mean. The people but, who are watching well, I mean, it I, are like, "I'm so bad. I'm bad. I'm bad." I, I also think that's a very like, I guess, white-centric way of viewing it too. Because yeah. I, but I'm, I'm saying that's it. why it got so much currency. People like, but, oh, we're I mean, so bad. But, like, but to that we're point so where, like, also black communities very much felt like, oh, this is kind of a, a yeah, story that's. I'm not shitting on Get Out. I'm shitting on right. the reaction Get Out got. Like, I think part of the reason it got yeah. so much cultural currency was like white guilt getting off to watching it. Well, I think it was a new, like, that that scene, maybe the most signature scene of the movie where, where Bradley Whitford says he would have voted for Obama for a third time, I think was like legitimately a little like quip that like had not been in media at the time or like a depiction of sort of uh, a farce of that kind of brand of liberalism that had not really been in media and like hit at the perfect right time um, and was very 
influential, I think, for, for everything that's come afterwards. Is it like groundbreaking? I don't know. I guess not. But I, I, I or is it like terribly unique? I don't know. But I think it was like perfect uh, timestamp and like a perfect, very simple satire. And then I, there's there's one critic that I, I listened to who's, who's a black film critic who is of the opinion that uh, Bradley Whitford's casting in that role was like 100% not an accident because Bradley Whitford, of course, plays Josh in the, the West Wing, which is sort of a brand of liberalism that I think the movie is also uh, critiquing. And by all counts, it appears that like Bradley Whitford himself like does not understand that line and like why it's funny, which I think makes, makes it, it so incredible. Much yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I will I will go for the like I, I understand that it got like a little like annoying with like how how big like as anything big does, but like I do think it's maybe maybe that we're almost a decade past. It's like actually at the point where it's easy to underappreciate how like kind of big it was to have that simple little jab in in that movie and at that time too. I, I, I'm gonna pose to you something that's like also like I, I it's gonna be weird uh but you know what, what do you feel about black panther for example because that's a movie that was very much received totally different by two different audiences i think it's fine i think it was a blockbuster right but like to a lot of like there, there's so many little moments in like black panther which make it so much more appealing to like you know someone who's from a black community, for example, right? That, yeah, that, that's, that's that's cool. Right, but it's like, it hits so many of those moments where you probably just think it's cool, but like a lot of people think it's like, oh, a seminal moment in filmmaking where we've it's important like to them. had that's this still... being told for the first time a lot of times, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like, I would watch, this is a long time ago, but I watched a movie called The Last Picture Show, which is this like black and white thing from I think the 60s or 70s, but it's about this dying Texas town and the soundtrack is Hank Williams. And it's like when I watch a film that has to do with a place that looks like the place where I came from, you know, this 100% something in, in me opens up. I have to be careful when I'm critiquing the thing to make sure I'm not conflating like the fact that it's resonating with me, with, with my own experience, how it resonates with me in the larger sense of me as a member of the human race. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's cool. Like, I have no, I have no great deep thoughts to say about Black Panther. I think it's a, I, it's good. Blo- I mean, there are well-made blockbusters. It's one of them. So. Well, I mean, like, yeah, but I mean, like to to my point, it's just like, oh, from a certain person's perspective, that should be added to the film canon. But it's really uh, important to them. But that doesn't make it an invalid statement. I wouldn't. That doesn't make Black Panther the greatest movie ever made. But it it's but important to them, so that's okay. Well, no, but like you know, like I think the 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 type of filmmaking that's required to tell you know like a, a story in there um, would be considered innovative um for some to yeah add back to the canon and so is waylon jennings like washing his voice with reverb and getting willie to produce his record this time and it like is great for me as someone who spent a lot of time in the south in the midwest but it doesn't make this time like the greatest record ever made you know so yeah it resonates with me but it doesn't necessarily make it the greatest thing so i'm saying like why what does make something the greatest record ever made in that case you know there's like like, yeah. yeah it's like you can't really also, if I'm understanding... I don't if, think it's pure uh, subjectivity, but keep going. I mean, are we critiquing... I guess I'm an unclear of whether we're critiquing the need for there to be a greatest blank of anything, mm, right? right? Okay. And see, this is where I... So actually, okay, there's like three things I want to... I Okay. So I think with what you're oh, we're saying... We're starting the show now, is what you're saying. What's that? 
We're starting the show now. We're starting. I'm about to hit record. No, I think this is the benefit of the idea of a canon versus greatest list. Because when you have a canon, you just say, there's no greatest, there's just greatness. And you don't have to like fucking fret about like if something's a minor work, but it touches on an important idea well, or if it's like okay, something- Okay, so why can't Snowpiercer and Parasite both be in the canon? Because Parasite's so overrated. Um, so you're here's my problem. Out of you're you're like you're saying no, that here's you're the problem. With Parasite. The Parasite is a crossover record. Okay. Parasite is Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. Are you saying Where you shouldn't like, put Jay Z, Lincoln Park in the greatest albums of all time? Like, is that what you're saying? No, I'm not talking crossover like that. I mean, there's always a record artists make when they like want to cross over into the mainstream, where they take what makes themselves distinctively them, but give it gives it just enough sheen. Just enough populous energy so that the masses will love it. I and can't it like believe it, Dylan went electric, man. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Dylan, Dylan going electric is like Dylan being Dylan. That's the thing. Nobody wanted Dylan to go electric. Yeah. Don't show. I've I've been listening to so much goddamn Bob Dylan. It's almost sinful. I've been listening. I listen. What Prince? I've been, Prince I've had is, a lot of much appreciation for Prince since starting to play guitar. Yeah, I, but I, I can get on board with the idea of, of canon versus ranking. Because, I mean, yeah, I, I also think this is the appeal between, the I think, the modern version of this, which is people making tier lists instead of ranks. I think it's much easier yeah. and, and uh, allows that kind of flexibility, um, which I think is an interesting internet riff on that. Uh, instead of doing one, two, three, four, five. Exactly. It's like, who wants to do one? Still to this day, if someone asks me my favorite, whatever, I, I totally freeze up. I have no idea what my favorite book is. I have no idea what my favorite movie is. Uh, I, I know things I like. It still would take me a sec to think about it. I, it's e easier for me to talk about something I watched recently that I liked than ever, you know? Because Also, it's like so many of these things for me are dependent on like when I watched or read them, you know? Like I... For me, it, it's, I don't think if I, you know, I know if I reread something, like if I reread The Savage Detectives now, it would hit totally differently. Um, so I, it, it's impossible for me to even also, just categorize it in my you own for life. loving the red and the black. That, oh, oh, did I you? I hated that. <laughs> Although the Charterhouse of Parma kicks ass. I haven't read that. Oh, dude, it's so good. Especially, have you been to Italy? I have not. Oh. Okay, two important right. life events yeah. that need to happen. Well, also, that's a good example. I really like the red and the black, I think, especially because I, I right. really liked the lecture that, oh, I was, in, that okay. was going on it. Like, And I, th I thought his accompanying lectures to it were really great. I don't think I would have appreciated that book if I just picked it up on my own. I mean, it's he's an interesting... I, don't, I just found it... Like once... I don't know. I guess, oh, it's Napoleon, but he's in a small town. Yeah, oh. the the way that book was presented to me was as sort of a keystone or, or um, you know, dec decoder key to understanding the buildings Roman, like it, in general. Because the, it, it, that doesn't invent the buildings de Roman, I don't think. No, no, no. And the claim the claim was not it was not claiming that this invented the buildings Roman, but I think it was just a, a book that the professor uh, thought was a good way to one show the pieces of like what goes into a typical buildings roman of that of the the 19th century but then also show some ways that it get it like uh 
was reacting to its time and sort of subverting some things that I thought was really great. It made me understand the period that it existed in, I think a lot better, or at least the professor's interpretation of that. But it was heavily uh, dependent on this professor providing that guidance for me, which I think is, you know, a testament to formal education. Oh, Um, fuck that shit. Or just education, you know? Oh, no. See, that's like, you don't need a professor to tell you what the red and the black means. Like, you're smart, especially us three. We're smart enough to read yeah. that book and know what it's saying. Well, we don't need some... Having someone who can who can provide other things to read in conjunction or contextualize it with you. And they, they shouldn't, you know, hold your hand. They shouldn't lead you to water and try to force you to drink that water. But I think a good educator provides the context that's because it's so hard to pick up especially like a primary text of something and then go out and find the accompanying contextualization i mean this is true even in in like nonfiction and just like researching planning stuff that i do for work like just the, the surrounding context of it is so key and it's very time consuming to adequately find that for everything so i think that's the better you know i, I don't you don't want to be too didactic obviously but having someone compile and, and sort of curate a selection of things and then um, leave enough room for you to explore your own response to it, I think is absolutely key and, and a huge time commitment. And it's a very specific skill. It's not necessarily the person who's good at doing that is not necessarily the person who's going to be the best at like actually writing an essay about it per se, but it, it's two separate and, and valuable things, I think. Yeah, when I look back at my education... I just think what a goddamn I had a couple good professors, but for the most part it was like what a goddamn waste of time. Like I don't need you to tell me what middle march means. I know what middle I've read yeah, to some extent, right, you have to read the things that surround middle march to really appreciate middle march. But then instead of like having some fucking person at the front of the room tell you what those things are, just go read them yourself. Like if you read the 19th century novel, then you get to middle march and you're like, "Oh, this is middle March in context. You don't have to have somebody like lecture you on it. Fucking hate, especially when it comes to like literature, man. Fuck them. Fuck those guys. They're mm. a bunch. Of, and then they try to group everything as isms. You know, I heard somebody like telling me there's like a, a sentimentalism movement in the earliest 20th century in the American novel. And they're just basically like cherry picking elements out of my Antonia and Carson McCullers. And there's like, there's no objective basis for this to be a movement. There's nothing in these works like, in in the total totality of the works which justifies this movement it's just like some professor who only knows how to understand things by creating isms like regurgitating it to a bunch of ma wannabes it's such bullshit mm-hmm. well i was just i like we have that kind of i hear action. what you're saying but what you're saying is a good point but it also doesn't agree with what i came in here thinking so i'm gonna attack it not fairly okay. but just because i like to argue what you say makes a good point you have a point but I also just like like fundamentally fucking hate literature professors, especially like douches that don't have anything worth saying. So I just yeah, I, my yeah. time was so wasted. I felt like going to those classes. I didn't even go because it's like why would I go and have you regurgitate like a bunch of synthetic bullshit to me? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe my my experience is also probably different. It might be that there's good and bad professors. Like I had some good ones. Like not the main thing I was studying. It was like one of the more fun classes I took, like on a lark. So I think that also maybe changes it as well. But yeah, I mean I I guess I would also agree that yeah, there is there is no when cataloging and and periodizing things, there is no objective um 
basis. I mean, I think also it's, it's particularly strong when the authors themselves consider themselves part of a movement. At that point, it's sort of hard. Right. To then it's worth bringing it up. Right. Right. But yeah, I think it's like it, it can still be fun and, and interesting to offer sort of different periodizations. I mean, it, I think this is a this is a huge debate um, within history and protect uh, in particular, like when when periodization actually happened, what what things we choose to include, like, you know, in the long 19th century and that that sort of thing. And I think the debate over those periods and categories is is sort of the core part of the exercise itself, you know. Um, and, and whether we find those buckets actually valid. But why do we need this whole, that's my thing. This is like, like we're kind of to bring this back around peaches. You were going to say something, but to bring this back around, like, why do we need this pearl clutching and hand wringing about the long 19th century? You know, like, why do we need these structures of like the traditional, like, like understanding of what makes it work great? Like, why can't we just appreciate things and their unique greatness for what the thing itself is trying to tell us. Like, why must everything just, be contextualized and treated as part of the history of ideas? No, you're just, well, people are just trying to describe, you know, like this is everyone's great journey is trying to describe the world to some extent, even if it's through art or whatever. But I think this is just some people's version of trying to describe what greatness is or to qualify it in whatever way they can. You know, I don't yeah. think there's any reason to like get mad at people for doing that. I well, think no, so, a, a lot of what makes precisely what makes things uniquely great is the way that they're responding to their time in particular. Like, I, I, I think, you know, for a movie like, um, you know, we, we can go with a highbrow one and a lowbrow one, like the Warriors being lowbrow genre and Serpico being more highbrow, three hours long, very serious, based on a book about you know, uh, whistleblowing and the NYPD. I think both of them are endure, endure because um, there are time capsules of a very particular moment in New York City. The Warriors goes, I think, kind of slept on and is a cult classic and, and only survives much later on through the decades as kind of like a very particular articulation of, of um, a near future and, and very... Uh, specific anxiety about New York and urban America and what other people were saying about New York as well, sort of a self-reflective um, kind of, this is what they're saying about us kind of vibe that I think is, is remained iconic. And also just the unique frill of just literally the, the outfits and the costumes of the movie. On the other hand, uh, Serpico is much more, that has got Al Pacino in it. It's I think just immediately a, um, critical success right off the bat it's three hours long it's shot but i guess both of them are shot on film um but that also has just like immense value in capturing just the the particular uh time stamp and vibe of new york in the 70s too that if you tried to remake serpico in like a, a contemporary 2023 version the only way it would be successful is if you basically sort of rewrote it to have the the Serpico character be responding to what's going on in the NYPD right now, you know, and it, it would entirely rely on its unique reaction to its time and what is going on. You wouldn't be able to understand, like if you wrote, if you tried to, if you went to a producer or a studio and you're like, I want to do 2023 Serpico, like you could not make that movie without being aware of 2020 in New York City and like the Floyd protests and COVID. 
and all that. Like it would not be able to be done. The, the merit of the movie isn't like the plot structure or even necessarily the acting performances or, or the photography performances. It's all part of it, obviously, but like it's, it's unique response to everything going on is, is um, very much what makes it particularly unique. So I guess I'm pushing back on this distinction you're drawing between like, periodization categorizing meaning something is less unique i think it's a way to celebrate the way that things are unique is to point out how it responded to its context because you know man makes his own history but he does not make it on the terms that he chooses or what's what's the fucking i'll, I'll just say the german translates that way yeah and then maybe it's just i think even to bring it back to how we started this because we're talking about like how philosophy is inherently teleological, but that in the university it's presented as a history of ideas. Like I think literature and art, and this is just maybe my preconception, which is faulty. Like I believe I believe it's inherently insular. Like the value in art is wrestling with the work of the art itself. Like the value in the Brothers Karamazov is not in understanding how it fits in with the history of serfdom. It's like in wrestling with the work itself and the work itself like works do include historical context and you certainly can learn about historical context and the context of art to maybe put this book in its place but that's like all background like that's the background of the painting the subject of the painting the thing that really matters is like the work itself and what you do with the work itself is wrestle with it but i think just like with philosophy how it's inherently teleological but like, and when you had some preconceptions, but no one acknowledged it. And instead of philosophy is taught as a history of ideas, I think like literature and art is inherently like an insular thing, but it was being taught as a history of ideas, a history of like a history of art instead of like, Hey, these are individual totems, which each deserve to be wrestled with, which the author has labored over endlessly trying to give you something that you should like consider before you fall asleep and in your dreams it's like, no, it's just actually part of a larger historical tapestry. Um, and so like, yes, it certainly, certainly if a work like tries to wrestle with its time, you need to like learn as much context as you need in order to appreciate what the work is trying to do. But I think fundamentally, this is the issue for me. It's like, instead of appreciating each work as the thing itself, like works become part of isms and movements. But, well, how do you... Yeah, how do you contextualize art then in that case? Because, you know, we're all here in the present looking at art that has been created. You know, I think just that framing itself changes what makes and how what reads about art. Like like Britt's saying, like there are historical incidents that affect how we perceive things and how we perceive morality and characters, you know? Um, like why are some stories that weren't resonant in their times extremely important and great to us now um you know i like that kind of stuff definitely well, comes into play you know like you can't consider a work of art by itself because we ourselves are a product of um you know context but i think you asked i think one of both of you guys asked like what makes a work great see this is actually what i think separates great works from merely like tokenism like to pimp a butterfly or get out get the acclaim they did because they were like people's token works in their time. Like that's the dynamic of art in the time it's released. But over time, like works of art are totems that continue to resonate. That's the miracle of art is that it resonates with us outside of its context. And so I think that like the truly great works 
are capable of resonating with us outside of the context and like preconceptions and prejudices in which they come to be. But I'm, I mean, that but like, how like do a you flip side of the same coin to me? Yeah. Like, to- totem and token. It just seems whether or not you find the people tokenizing something to be annoying or not. Right. Which and is like, fine. You know, and I, I do, I, I, I have that reaction to thing all things all the time, you know, which is also like, why are we, um, how do you, uh, I'm, I'm realizing by your logic is a lot right now, but, but uh, here's, here, I've got an example, like Ted Lasso, people seem to fucking love that show in a way that I don't get at all. And, and I am a huge hater. Uh, but <laughs> at this point, you know, I cannot deny that in, in a fucked up stupid way, it is, it is going to be, it, it's a show of note that is responding. People are responding to it because of something in the culture right now. And it has its own little footnote in the uh, the book of life or whatever now. And it's like, I can't ignore, you know, I the fact that I'm a huge hater, it doesn't make me, I, it the reason I'm a hater is because it's resonating with people in a way that I don't understand. Um, and like I might, and, and, and my critiques of it might be that it's shallow and that it's a reductive and that it's a token effort at something that's going on. But um, I, you know, I, I think that's not too different from something that hits on something I think is really essential, I guess. I mean, I don't know. It, it also, whether or not your work is tokenized is often beyond the author's control themselves um, and often happens after their own death, too, whether it's their literal biological death or, you know, if you want to get postmodern about it, the death of, of their authorship and control over a piece. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think there's, there's a kernel of truth maybe to, to what you're saying, but I, I think that something being a totem, something being a token is sort of the same underlying dynamic. Um, but yeah, I mean, cause you could also say this about, I think you could say this about any sort of eternal or, or longstanding piece of art or literature. I mean, I think that maybe the biggest, most controversial example is the freaking Bible itself you know like it current definitely um obviously endures and appeals to billions of people over time but in different ways that some people would say is a tokenized cheap bastardized version of the essential truth of the text um and other people find to be sort of self-standing and and uh, self-evident and um, I think it's the, the same reaction happening to the same text. I mean, different translations, sure, different curations. But I think that's maybe the oldest example we have of this sort of dynamic. That's true. 30 years ago, Bible considered pretty great. Right now, stocks are pretty low. <laughs> Bible, yeah. no, there's good books in the Bible. No, but those stocks are pretty low, like in terms of like what people consider as great literature, you know? I don't, man, I don't know. I don't, like the Song of Solomon or Sirach, like... I don't. I. I don't think anybody disrespects some literary qual literary qualities of some books. Ezekiel, like Ezekiel, fucking bangs. I don't know. It's some boomer shit. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's just. No, I think this is the difference between tokenism and totemism, Brit. I think that like when something is a token, it says something about the reader. When you when you work with totemism, it says something about the work. How is how can Ooh. you say that though? Like how what like what 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 qualifies that quality about but the I work? But I think you know? I think a a good piece of art does tell you something about the reader. Like like if when you have a reaction to a book and you you pour a little bit of yourself into it as well as you're reading it. 
that is, I think, the hallmark of a good book. I, I get what you're saying a little bit where, like, there, there's more – I think there are more in true – or there are less and more authentic reactions to art. Like, there's the feeling of, like, feeling obliged to react to something. This is kind of what I was trying to talk about with the Hannah Gadsby thing earlier that people, I think, are really pushing back on is sort of a, a feeling of compulsory, you know uh, – Paying, paying respect to like a certain idea rather than finding an authentic reaction to something. But I do think that like when you react to, to when something is really good, it brings out a reaction to something that no one will, else will have the exact same reaction that you do to a piece of work. And I think maybe that's what you're saying about the importance of like a unique uh, quality of the work. But I do think that part of the uniqueness of a great piece of art is in fact always a reflection of whoever is reading and consuming it. Uh, but to me also, like, I guess the framing for it's like, if you're considering, I guess, on its own merit, like, well, that's what you're saying, a piece of art uh, to be great. How can you give that any quality without that art being con- or perceived by someone? Yeah, no, uh, certainly art is never consumed outside of one's subjective experience of it. But I guess when I'm, when I, when I say like totem is about like the, the consume, well, when I say a token is about the person consuming it. That person finds, like, essentially, maybe it's the difference between a mirror and a box. Like, yes, you have different reactions to, like, what you find in the mirror versus what you find in the box. Even, there might even be a mirror in the box. Like, that might be the point of the box. But when I watch Get Out, and I acclaim Get Out because it pushes all my buttons of white guilt, that's a different thing than, like, opening up the box that is Get Out and wrestling with Jordan Peele's, like, conception of, Black identity and experience in the context of white America. Yeah, I guess my like even even also... within the same work, you can have like somebody reckoning, reckoning with it as a token versus somebody right. somebody reckoning it with it as a totem. Bring but... us full circle. Parasite, I feel like, is maybe most famous for people, you know, like rich people on Twitter tweeting about how much they loved it, and people being like, "You did, <laughs> didn't, you know? Don't 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 you feel a little indicted by this?" So I think that that's yeah within the same work people can have more or less valid I guess yeah but my my overall question is why do you care so much about you know like their perception of the art compared Uh, to because I feel like my own perception of my efforts is somewhat at stake like if I'm working on things in my spare time and I don't really have control how they're perceived after I die I want there to be some framework for understanding art that does not like cheapenize or bastardize my work it also affects me when I like so it's read. Like, I was gonna say this is like a very selfish thing then. Well, no, not even that. Also, like my relationship to art, an artist is why I would conceive of as love. Like I love Conrad. Like I love Conrad, and it really frustrates me when I hear people bastardizing Conrad. Like it just it upsets me. Like it would if someone talked shit on my girlfriend. So you just have a parasocial relationship with the artists that you like. But not even like I read no, but that's Conrad. Exactly and it's like, what that, no, but that's exactly what that is, though, right? It's like the same. No, thing I don't think it. it's like my like. I think I'm dating Conrad, and Conrad doesn't know it. It's that I read no, Heart of not, Darkness. I mean, like that's like oh hey, like a I I feel like I have a right to like feel aggrandized if someone's you know. Um, like making fun of my most popular YouTuber because I really understand the ins and outs of the way that they edit their content to like tr- uh, to to relate their information to their audience like and I take ownership of that because I like that art. I mean, isn't that the same thing? 
One, I don't think my argument about, I see what you're doing. You're, you're orienting my argument in psychology. And while as a good Nietzschean, I would never deny that my philosophy is oriented to my psychology. I don't think it disproves my earlier argument. I don't think that how I feel about Conrad is parasocial. I think that it's like a connoisseur. Like if I do something and I appreciate the other person like doing that thing in the same field in which I work, like basketball players watch other people play basketball. You know, like right. basketball players love Jokic. They and like they have still a different... have a parasocial relationship with the basketball. I mean, players. sure, if you want to define yeah. parasocial, well, I mean, that's to what make I'm it so like, general that it has no meaning. No, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, no, it just means that you have more of a relationship with the the thing that you're observing than they do with you, right? Um, and in this case, you're doing that with snobbery. <laughs> hey, I'm <laughs> not the one. I'm not the one who wrote Heart of Darkness for me to read. One could argue that Conrad was seeking this sort of companionship across distances and time. Um, okay, can I bring up no, be, beyond that. You like Conrad cannot consent to this relationship. Uh, he it, already did when point. he wrote the book. Um, but what, what I'm saying is that, like, you yourself are adding snobbery here, aren't you? Like, by by adding your own personal inflections on what like you consider great, so other people should perceive. Yeah, that I mean, way. I feel like this is what criticism is for, right? Duking out these battles. Yeah, it's just like a matter of like having different points. Like, I don't admit that I'm not a snob. I just am snobbish about certain things. Like, and you you know that, like. To the point where you're a connoisseur of things like I like in hip hop, like my 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 preferences are towards kind of like artists like Vin Staples or Ski Mask's Slope God, not necessarily like the 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 bigger like you know mainstream guys like Kendrick or or you know like Drake or or if people come for uh, Ari Aster and Bo is afraid, I will <laughs> tell them they're stupid. Um, that's but, they, but that's but I'm saying like my point of view, like I like uh, artists who pick, you know, like very selective about their beats are very lyrical in their kind of specific ways and they're very technically proficient. Um, but that doesn't get me to determine what the canon is for all of hip hop. Right. If, if that was the case and like, why are we not respecting like, you know, Ice Spice, you know? Well, no, that's that's no. I actually I, I push back on this because I. I OK, yeah, like. Like the last picture show or Conrad resonates with me personally, right? Faulkner especially resonates with me personally. But like, I don't go to art looking to be consoled. Like, I don't try to just consume art that I like, that like, like that me and my particular subjectivity unique to me will enjoy. Like, I actually want to consume things that I don't like. And I do make an effort to consume things that I don't enjoy, but which I still or some other people have told me have merit. So I'm not like trying to remake the canon in my own image. In fact, that's what I'm arguing against. That's what I think is happening. I think the canon is being made in the image of the people who are deciding what the canon is. I want fucking the unique, visionary, like thing unique to the artist, the best thing you can make that's unique to you to be given to me, whether or not it makes me uncomfortable or whether or not it makes me feel icky or I don't like it. Like I didn't like... Uh, you know what, 100 Days of Sodom, that film? Solo. Solo, yeah, yeah. I did not like that movie. I found it very disturbing, (laughs) but like it's what Pasolini wanted to fucking make, and so I can fucking respect it. You know, I can fucking respect Pasolini, and it should 100% be part of the canon, and I can respect its achievement. But it doesn't mean I like it. I'm not trying to remake the canon in my image. I'm trying to make the canon have authenticity. I want to make the canon rich. I want to make it rich like a cheesecake. Yeah, but how do you determine greatness without adding that subjectivity? That's the issue. Like everyone, like you're even in the time frame itself right yeah. now, right? Like 
all the the media that we're consuming is affected by you know i also I just think. want to clarify that if anyone wants to you know go to battle on behalf of us on on of our podcast i won't get in the way if you want to be parasocial that's and fight true battles yeah. For us. yeah please, please i, I can send it. to you uh yeah. having a parasocial relationship with me i think there's a gap between the subjectivity of me as jacob versus the subjectivity of me as a human being I think there's a certain kind of subjectivity that we all share. As Kant would say, we all have a certain transcendental aesthetic. Well. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a good place to 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 end with, with for that. 